It's time to invite the kids to come on up front. Make your way up. Find a seat. Here it comes. Good to see you. All right. Find a spot to sit, everyone. All right. Excuse me. Good. All right. Well, to start off this morning, I have something to show you. It's a little prize. It's kind of cool. You ready? It's a little kit that you can build a pirate ship. You saw a pirate ship. Wow. I'd, I'd drive away if I saw a pirate ship. All right. So a neat little prize here. Now, I, who might be interested in, in this prize? Anybody here maybe interested in this prize? Jordan, you might be interested? Okay, I want you to come and stand over here. All right. Now, I'm not just going to give it to you. Here, come on over here. Okay, I'm not just going to give it to you, though. There's a catch to it. All right? That means there's something that it's not just going to give to you. All right? So, in order to get this prize, it's going to cost you. You guys should see the look I just got. It's going to cost you $20. Do you have $20 you can give me for this? You do? In your pocket there? Do you have $20? No? How much do you have? Zero. Zero. You have nothing to give me for this? Nothing in your pocket to give me for this. Oh, that's a bummer. You might, I guess you're going to have to go sit down. Sorry, buddy. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Wait, come back up. I have an idea. Maybe there's a way, okay? Come on back over here. Maybe, maybe there's a way yet, all right? What if there was someone here who could cover that cost for you. Somebody who could come between what I demand and what you are lacking. Do you think that might work? Maybe there's somebody here who could help bridge that gap because between my demand and what Jordan actually has. So I'm going to ask my son Judson to come on up, and he's actually going to stand right here between us, okay? All right, turn this way. So Judson, I'm demanding $20 in order for Jordan to get this prize. Do you have anything that could help with that? I have that. What is that? $20. You have $20. Are you willing to give that $20 to me to meet that cost so that Jordan can have this prize? Yeah. All right, so I'll take the $20, and then you can give that prize to Jordan. Good. All right, thanks. (laughs) He's happy now, isn't he? Good. Thanks. You can sit down. All right, so here's the thing, guys. Okay, let's listen. Jordan needed a mediator. He needs someone who could help him and I come together to meet that agreement, right? Okay, listen here, guys. He needs somebody to come between us to help bridge that gap. Now, Judson didn't just negotiate a new deal, did he? But he himself paid that price, the full requirement in order for Jordan to get that prize, all right? Let me tell you a verse. This is one that uh, somebody read a little bit earlier. First Timothy chapter 2. This is what Pastor Jeremy's, part of what Pastor Jeremy's going to be preaching on. It says this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. That mediator is the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom or payment. He paid the price for all. So in our little illustration here, who represented God here? I did, right? I represented God. Who represented mankind? Who represented people? 
Jordan did, right? And who, represented, who is the mediator representing Jesus to come between man and God? Yeah, Judson was, right. So similar to how Judson made the connection between Jordan and myself, it's through Jesus Christ that all of us people come into relationship with God. So here in our little scenario, the payment was $20, right? But spiritually with God, the payment for sin, our sin against God, that's what separates us, that's what needed to be bridged, that gap, the payment for that is death. And so Jordan couldn't get the prize because he didn't have $20. He didn't have the payment to pay, right? Similarly, people cannot receive salvation apart from Jesus Christ. He is the only way. Him dying in our place is the only way we can come in to relationship with God. That's the only payment that will work. And so Jesus gave, gave himself fully so we can be saved from sin and have eternal life. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only one to bring us to God. He is our mediator, the one to bridge that gap, to go between. He is the only way that we can be saved. So we can put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. So Jordan, you enjoy your prize, okay? All right, everybody else can go back and have a seat. Thanks. All right, we are in uh, the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. We've been, in the last several weeks, going through a topical series called Getting Ready to Move. Uh, as you know, we've purchased a new building. We're getting it ready and hope to be in there sometime, maybe October, early November, and wanted to hit on a few things in preparation for us to move there, um, things of how we can do it well. The first week we talked about seeking the Lord. Unless the Lord builds a house, the builders build a vein, so we need to be very dependent on God throughout this process. We don't want to do it in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own ways. Second week was about seeking God and not being like uh, Solomon's son, who when he had peace, and prosperity in the kingdom, he turned from the Lord, rather like Asa, who sought the Lord with all of his heart, even to the extent of deposing his mom, who had abandoned the Lord. Uh, and then we talked about working hard, which you guys are doing well, and so keep that up. Last week, Pastor Jeff talked about evangelism and the opportunity we'll have when we go to the new building to invite those who are apart from Christ. And this week is the last one in the series, and I've titled it, Keeping First Things First keeping first things first from this chapter. One of the concerns that I have is that, uh, you know, when you get into something like what we're doing, we get in a new building, it's big, it's beautiful, it's everything we want, that we could be distracted from what we are to be about. That God has given us priorities as a church and we don't want to get distracted from those because of a new building. For instance, in Acts, when the church was established, the apostles, 
kind of like the pastors, the elders of the church, their main task was preaching the word and prayer. And in Acts 6, we read of other good ministry that got in the way of their primary ministry. And they were neglecting the reading and preaching and teaching of God's word, the praying for other good ministry. Uh, and we don't want to do that. We, we want to keep the main thing the main thing in our new building. And so that's what this sermon is aimed at. Uh, because in Luke 12, as I've said before, those who are given much, much is required. We're going to be given much and we want to be faithful to it. And one of the ways we can be faithful to it is to keep the main thing the main thing. And in this uh, text, we'll see that. So that's my hope. We don't want to fall to the common temptation of letting important things but aren't primary become the primary. And then the primary things get secondary. We want to keep the main things the main thing. So, so that's it. Let me read this text. We'll pray. And then we'll look at what God is requiring of us. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let's pray. Father, all of your commandments are sure, and in your word we read of your steadfast love that gives life to us, that blesses us with salvation. And so... Teach us now to hope in your word. May your Holy Spirit guard us from forsaking your precepts and instead enable us to keep the testimonies of your mouth for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. I need to do some background work. This is the first sermon out of this book, and so I want to just take a moment and give you a little bit of background. Uh, The Apostle Paul is the author of this, uh, and he is writing to... Uh, what we might call his right-hand man. Um, Paul had planted a church in an area or a city called Ephesus. Timothy is now pastoring this church, and Paul is writing to Timothy at the, towards the very end of his life, uh, a book that was meant not only for the church in Ephesus, but for all churches, in order to, um, this might sound strange to you, get along with the crucial business of institutionalizing the church. That's what this is for. It's a common saying in our day that we, we want to be about a relationship and not about a religion. Well, that's true in the sense that we want to maintain a healthy, vibrant relationship with the Lord, but it's not true in that we're not supposed to have order. Uh, we're not, we are supposed to have right order. We're, after, we're, we're supposed to have a, a right religious order. And Paul is writing to Timothy at the end of his life on how the church should function here on out. How how to get right order in the church now that Paul's going to be gone. How should the church be ordered? How should it be structured? How should we do governance? That's what this letter is about, as well as 2 Timothy and Titus. And so the church has been established. We read that in the book of Acts. 
They have endured from the time of the ascension of our Lord through a great persecution, and now Paul is preparing them for the future. Like Israel moving from wilderness wanderings to establishment in a permanent land, and so God is preparing the church through this letter for permanence. Now that we're established, what do we do from here? That's what's going on. And the heart of this letter is chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Uh, This book is set up um, where the first half goes towards a great middle point, then you reach the middle point, and the second half builds from there. So it's all working, funneling down to this middle point, and these three verses are the absolute central of the text. And here we get the marching orders for the church. I hope to come to you soon, but if I... But I am writing these things so that if I am in delayed, you might know how to behave in the household of God. There it is. That's what this, the letter's for. How do we behave in the church? How do we order the church? And what is the church? It is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So as we move to a new building, we don't want to lose this. The central function of the church are to be uh, defenders of God's truth in His Word. That's the point. The church isn't um, to do all, all kinds of anything but, but be a defender, uh, a rock where God's truth is held firm to, which is unfortunate our day. I was at a wedding last night. My sister got married. It was a blast. And while I was there, one of my closest pastor friends, where my sister attends, came pastors sometimes, if they're not doing the, the, the wedding, they'll just come for like 20 minutes to make their appearance and leave. That's what he did. But while he was there for 20 minutes, I, well, he's probably there for an hour or two. Um, but uh, I got to talk with him. And one of the things that's happened in his town is that um, a, another local church has hired a woman pastor. And some women in his church wanted the woman pastor to come and teach their group, which he shouldn't even have entertained at all. But he, he wanted to meet with her. And so as meeting with her, they began to discuss what she believed about the Bible, what she believed about anything. Well, she didn't believe in hell. She didn't believe the Bible was God's inspired word. And she was in a conservative denomination who has ordained her wrongly with all kinds of heresy. The church is supposed to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And in our day, that's fallen on hard times. In Pine Grove, we will not do that. Right? We will not do that. We will not... As we go into a new building um, where we might face new pressures, where some of you might even be tempted to want to, you won't, you won't ever say you don't want to tell the truth, you just don't want to talk about that truth, because it might turn people away, or it might turn people, we won't do that. We will not do that. Um, we better not do that, because we have given this thing. So, uh, our charge as a church is to be a pillar and buttress of the church, or of the truth. Now, in chapter two, our passage and this book is largely dealing with uh, worship. Paul, in verse seven, says he was appointed a preacher and an apostle. He is supposed to be preaching the gospel, and so the context here is dealing with public worship. And in the first half of the chapter, he deals with what he wants men to be doing in worship. In the second half of the chapter he deals with what women. We're only going to deal with the the first half. In the first half, he wants men to be praying. 
It's very practical. This is feet on the ground, instruction for the church. And in public worship, he wants men to be praying. Okay? And why does he want men to be praying? Uh, he wants men to be, sorry, what does he want men to be praying for? He wants men to be praying for kings and all who are in high position. Why does he want men in worship to be praying for people who are in high positions in government worship so that we might have peaceful and quiet and orderly uh, civil existence? So Paul wants men in worship to be praying for those in authority so that uh, society might be well-governed. Might be peaceful. It might be orderly. What for? What for? Verses 4, 5, and 6. He wants the gospel to go out and people to get saved. That's the end goal of Paul's exhortation to men to pray and worship. He wants men to pray and worship. He wants them to pray specifically for those in civil authority so we might have a society that's well-ordered and peaceful for the sake of the spread of the gospel. And so the goal here of Christian worship and prayer and worship is that the gospel might reach the unsaved. And so, just just see what we're doing here, right? Why are we doing what we're doing? Our worship should have an impact on our society, is the point here. So many times we come to church Sunday morning and we think that nothing is happening here. Maybe what you want is a little encouragement You come here because you want a little boost. You come here because that's what your parents did and now that's what you do. You come here because your neighbor's been bugging you and you haven't been to church in a while and so you're here. No, no. We come here to pray to the holy God of the universe so that he might give us peace in our society so the gospel might go forward. So what we do here matters. You see that? What you and I are doing here matters greatly. Think of this as warfare. God is a God of war. He defeats his enemies always in one of two ways. He either will crush them or he'll save them. (laughs) At the end of time, all of his enemies will be defeated. They will either be ultimately physically defeated and in hell or they will be saved. And how does that happen? Well, it happens by men praying in the service. By something that you think is utterly ordinary. Right? You think that men praying here just about does nothing. Come on, admit it, right? You think that when you come to worship and we pray here, it's inconsequential. And Paul... uh, is, is smacking you in the face. Wake up. What we do here on Sunday morning matters. It's big. It's huge. Or in the profound word of our president, it's hugely. It's bigly. Right? This is, this is, this is mega. Sunday morning matters. Sunday morning matters. Alright, we'll apply that in a minute. But now we have to hit on one, two, three, and a, or four kind of big truths here that I want to go through real quick. One is, the first one is controversial. We have this uh, in verse one, uh, I urge prayer for all people. See those two words, all people. 
Then again in verse 4, he desires all people. Verse 6, we have it again. He gave himself as a ransom for all. Does that word, that phrase, all or all people, does that mean all individuals everywhere? Or does that mean all kinds of people, all types, groups? There's two camps here. Some believe that it means God, we're supposed to be praying for every individual. God wants every individual to be saved, and Christ gave himself as a ransom for every individual. And then there are some who here see it's not talking about every individual. Rather, he is talking about all kinds of people, every grouping of people. I think the context points at the latter. Uh, Paul urges prayer for all people in verse 1, and then he gives you an example of a grouping of people, kings and those in civil authority. The term in the Greek, the all there, typically in Greek doesn't refer to everyone everywhere, but groupings, categories. And so this is controversial. Um, if you're at all a, a part of the Christian lingo, this is a great debate between Calvinists on the one hand and Arminians on the other. I don't really care if you know what that means. Um, we care what this text says. I think because of the common usage of the Greek where all meant every man or every kind, because of the context of Paul applying it to a specific group that, the, that, that here... Uh, Paul is urging for prayer in the church for all kinds of people and that when we read that it is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior desires all people to be saved that doesn't necessarily imply everyone everywhere as it does all groups now I'm not going to get into this more deeply someday we will uh, but you've read this before some of you were before and I'm not going to just pass over this controversy now we can apply this Right. We want to take this with us to our new building. How do we apply that? Well, first of all, God does have a desire for people to get saved. And, and the way, as we'll see, that salvation comes to people is when the truth is told, not when the truth is hidden. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And the way that People come to faith in Christ is when the truth is told. Okay, so let's tell the truth as a church. The second truth that we have to get into here is we see some very helpful teaching on the relationship between the church and the state. In the Bible, there are four spheres, uh, four groups four different groups in our world. You have the individual, you have the family, you have the church, and then you have the state or the civil sphere, or the government, society. And here in this text we see Paul teaching on relationship between the church and the state. The church's job is to pray and preach the gospel. The church is to be a pillar, a buttress of the truth of God's word. 
So the church is given two great responsibilities. Prayer and our worship on Sunday morning and to maintain faithful biblical preaching and teaching of God's Word. The state's job in this text is to keep the peace. Paul reminds us in Romans 13 that God has given the state a sword in order to punish the evildoer, to keep the peace, to keep good public order. The state isn't the savior. The state isn't supposed to be a defender of the truth. That's our job as the church. The state is to be a police force. Another way to say it is, in in a school setting, the state's job isn't to be a teacher. The state's job isn't to be the principal. The state's job is to be the hall monitor. Nobody likes the hall monitor. But their job is to discipline evil, to restrain evil. And God wants a good working relationship between the church and the state for the sake of the gospel. We see that in this text. Paul wants the church to rightly influence the state. And the main way we see through here is by prayer. Our job as a church on Sunday morning is to pray to the all-powerful, all-wise God for government, for those in authority, that they might maintain good, peaceful order so that the gospel might go forward. Many of you in our kind of church lament how our society is becoming very disordered. Whose fault is that? Where does primary responsibility lie for what many of you lament as the destruction of our society? Where does, it, where does, where does that lie? Us. Right? And we as Christians are so good at pointing the finger at those in authority pointing the finger at elected officials, pointing the finger at one group of one political party or another, it's us. Judgment must always begin with the household of God. So wake up. Quit whining and start praying. So take that to the new building. You want to see the gospel spread? You really care about the lost coming to Christ? Do you want to see peace and pray, would you? Let's pray. The third truth we have to see here is the most glorious. We see the truth of substitutionary atonement very clearly in this text. We have in verse 5 this confessional statement, one God, one mediator. Then in verse 6, we see this truth of the gospel. What is the gospel? We have one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And then what did Jesus do? He gave himself as a ransom. He gave himself as a ransom for all. I think it's there all kinds. 
get to that. The Greek word for the word ransom here is lutron. Paul adds a prefix to this word. He kind of creates his own word here. Paul is really good at this. There are several terms in the Bible that are found nowhere else in Greek because Paul has coined his own word. Paul's done that here. He's added the prefix anti before lutron. Anti-lutron, which literally means in the place of ransom. So there's two words here. The anti means substitute or instead of. Lutron means ransom. And so Paul is saying Christ died as a in the place of substitute ransom. And this is the heart of the gospel. Christ died on our behalf as a ransom for us. Paul packs into this one word the central reality of the gospel. He is the only mediator between God and men because we are sinners. God is holy. And Christ came in our place, anti as a substitute, ransom. As though that's not enough, Paul follows up the term ransom with the prefix with, with this, on behalf of, for all. And then before that, Paul says he gave himself three ways Paul points to the reality that Christ died in your place for your sins. He died. He gave himself as an anti-ransom, as a on behalf of you ransom, on your behalf, for all. Three ways Paul said it. Sinners. Get the truth of the gospel here. And the truth is Christ died in the place of sinners. This is what the church is supposed to be about. This isn't all that the church is supposed to be about. But this is the only thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is of first importance. We must never, as a church, move off of this gospel. You and I, one of the ways that we'll move off of this gospel is not that we'll stop preaching it. It's not that we'll stop signing up to a doctrinal statement that confesses it. It's that you and I will grow old with this news. It'll become stale for you. It won't have the awe that it once did for you. You'll hear this preached every Sunday, Christ died in my place, and you'll ho-hum it. It'll pass over you like uh, eating a hot dog. That cannot happen here. The God of the universe sent his son in your place for your sins. He gave himself, the second member of the Trinity, God of all gods, the eternally existing, all-powerful son of God, took on flesh, took on your sin, and died on the cross in your place. Paul, every letter that he writes to every church that he planted who knows this gospel continues to preach this gospel. Because believers need to hear it. Paul writes in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He's not talking to unbelievers there. He says just before that that he's writing to the Christians in Rome. 
He's reminding them the gospel is the power of God to save you from beginning to end. Don't grow old with that. Don't let that go stale. Don't let your heart just pass that over. This is what you need to hear more than you need to hear anything else. Because the reality is, there is one God. And you will stand before Him one day. And you will give an account. And the only way that you will be accepted into His eternal presence and not rejected and sent to hell is as you have faith in the one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. The fourth truth that you've heard, I'm just going to hit this real quick, is how evangelism is to happen. Pastor Jeff preached very well on this last week. And by way of reminder, Paul says here, He ties evangelism, the gospel going, by our praying and worship. God's people gathered in worship is one of the main ways that evangelism is supposed to happen. You should get to know your neighbors and do hospitality in order to build relationships that you can proclaim the gospel there. You should at work, be prayerfully looking for opportunities to share the gospel. But one of the main ways we do evangelism is right here on Sunday morning. We pray. God provides peace so that we can invite people in so that they can hear the preaching of the gospel, as Paul says in verse 7. So what I want to do is just take all of that and apply it to our transition. I have a few. We'll see how many we get through. So now I want you to listen. We're going to be transitioning to a new building. And I want you to hear a few things so that we can continue to do this by faith. We can continue to do this under God's blessing. Number one, and you've heard it a few times already, you and I must fight to keep the gospel central. Okay, Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 15 that only the gospel is of first priority. I, again, I don't mean that nothing else is important. If there's something of first importance, I mean there's something of second importance and third importance. But the central importance is we must keep the gospel central and we must keep it straight. And verse 6 is the gospel. Christ died in our place for our sin. There is no other gospel. Paul says in Galatians 1 that anybody who attempts to distort this gospel, he wishes would be damned to hell. We do not want to mess with this gospel, nor do we want to have anything else creep in and take its place. Second, we must focus on right worship, paying particular attention to prayer in worship. Paul writes that he urges. Notice that. First of all, first. Okay? We should take note when there's words like that. First. My first practical 
feet on the ground, how to do church in the letter that I'm writing to all the churches so that we might know how we ought to behave in the house of God. The first thing, and I urge this, the first thing that I'm urging are supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings. We must pay particular attention to worship and particular attention to prayer in worship. We must not neglect public prayer in worship. You should throw a fit if we squeeze out prayer and worship. And you shouldn't be asking that we sing more hymns or that we sing more contemporary songs. You should be asking that we have more prayer and worship. Get it right. This is what Paul urges as a first priority in worship. Men praying in worship. Third, We want, or uh, I'm sorry, I just skipped it. We must keep central the preaching and teaching of the gospel. I know I've said we got to keep the gospel central, but Paul here, after urging for prayer, reminds us that as an apostle, he was appointed for the preaching of the gospel. And as Paul is leaving, he hands that off to Timothy, who then hands that off uh, on going to the church. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of living and dead by his appearing in the kingdom, preach the word. Mark Dever, who is a pastor out in Washington, D.C., when he was interviewing, candidating for that position out there, they kind of asked him, all right, what, what would you do in the church? What programs would you do? And so on. And he said, I, you know, let's get this straight. I don't care if everything falls apart as long as we continue to preach the word. That's it. There's nothing as important in the church as the preaching of God's word. Nothing should distract us from this. Nothing. Which means you have a huge part in this. You have to be attentive. You have to come eagerly attentive to the preaching of God's word. You have to come here on a Sunday morning ready for the most important thing of the week. To hear the word of God preached. To take it in. To pay attention to it. To give it careful attentiveness. Which means get some sleep on Saturday night. Get up in time so that you're ready here to hear God's word. God is speaking, brothers and sisters, every Sunday here. As long as his word is rightly preached. It's not because of the preacher. It's nothing to do with that. It's if God's word is rightly preached, God is speaking. This is the only place in the world where this is happening. God is speaking to you through his word, through an imperfect, fallen, sinful preacher. It's not about the preacher, it's about God's word. We must keep this central. Fourth, Paul wants us to pray so that we have peace in our society so that the unsaved can hear the gospel. Which, must mean, which means we, we have to continue to bring our unsaved friends and family to hear the gospel preached. So many times in the church we put pressure on you to go tell the gospel to your unsaved friends, which you should be doing. But we should have just as much pressure to wonder, are we praying for our government leaders? Are, are we inviting people to hear the gospel? Now, 
The only way, as Pastor Jeff said last week, that you would invite people to hear the gospel is if you're unashamed of it. If you know it is the power of God to save. Fifth, we must keep a right view of God before us. Paul in verse 5, and we'll conclude with this in a few minutes, teaches us about God. There's only one God. He's the only God. He is a holy God who requires sinless perfection. Because of this, he has provided a mediator in his son between God and men. And as Paul gets theological on us, God is sovereign in this text. As you can see, God reigns over rulers. As we pray to God, God works in the lives and hearts of rulers. And in society, God is sovereign over the nations. He rules over kings and rulers. He rules over salvation. He determines in this text who gets saved and who isn't. And God is good. We read in this text that he is pleased by peace. We read in this text that he desires salvation of all kinds of sinners. So we as a church must keep right theology of God before us. We must not neglect right biblical thinking of who God is, who rules this world, and how he saves sinners. And fifth, and this one's very applicable for our building work and for our transition, God loves peaceful and quiet lives. There is going to be temptation for quarreling in the next couple months. There is going to be temptation for anger in the next couple months. You are going to be frustrated because what you would like to see happen isn't happening. You're going to be frustrated because you have a better idea than the person who's in charge. You're going to be tempted to quarrel. Now, Paul, the context here isn't relationships in the church. It's, it's the world, it's society, it's government. But if God loves peace out there, how much more in here? You and I must, by grace, through prayer, keep the peace and quiet kind of life. So, I'm not talking about false peace here. I'm not talking about where you see somebody in sin and you just sweep it under the rug to keep the peace. I'm talking about working hard, encouraging others, refraining from sin with your words, repenting and being quick to forgive. I'm talking about working hard together over a period of weeks, putting the interests of others before yourself, where you're not the most important person in the room, and you and I keep the peace and quiet lives godly and dignified in every way. This is going to be very important over the next couple months, and it really depends on each of us, doesn't it? You can have 35 people over the working there, and the 36 is a grumbling, whining complainer. It ruins the peace for everybody. We, can't, we cannot have that right now. God, it's pleasing that you might live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. If it's true out there, how much more in here? All right, so let's keep these things central. In closing then, let's confess our faith. Here's what we believe as Christians. Here's what we need to keep central. There is only one God. There, there is only 
one God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of our strength. This is fundamental to biblical, evangelical, full-hearted Christianity. There is only one God, and you should worship and serve Him alone. Second, there is only one mediator between God and men. There is no other Savior but Christ Jesus, the Son of God. We believe that we would give our lives for those two truths. Any distortion of those two truths ceases to, make, or ceases to be Christian. And that mediator is a, the God who became man. See that? There's one God and there's one mediator between God and man. The man. Notice that Paul emphasizes the humanity of Jesus Christ. We believe that the second member of the Trinity, God of all gods, eternally existing, in every way God, became a real flesh and blood man, born of a virgin. This is what we confess. This has been a doctrine under great error throughout Christian history. And fourth, we confess that he gave himself in our place to pay for our sins. We believe that these things are rock-solid, eternal, unchanging truth laid down in God's word for us and for our children. And as we transition to a new building, and as you who are seated here who are the coming generation... We as a church will not move off of these truths. I would rather have a church of 20 meeting in the basement of a dingy building confessing these truths than a church of 600 denying anything of this. Let's pray. Well, Father, we... Come to you humbly, as you are God alone. There is none like you. You are sovereign over the nations, over the rulers of nations, over the peace and prosperity of the land. Everything is under you. And so we come pleading with you to put in place rulers that would bring peace and quiet lives, that we could live godly and dignified in every way, so that the gospel could go and many would be saved. And so God, teach us to pray. God, do whatever it takes for us to be more prayerful and more um, passionate, heartfelt, zealous in our prayer. And so God, would you please help us to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the charge is this. Consider praying. Pray as if the peace and quietness of life depend on it, because it does. 
I want to especially exhort the men towards this, especially on Sunday morning. The Lord be with your spirit. The grace of God go with you all. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.